1: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Hi. I am Kate Rigby, Professor of Environmental Humanities at Monash University and I'm a fan of 3CR Community Radio, which is 8.55 on your AM dial and I recommend in particular Radical Philosophy. Material things aside, we need no advice but approval, Coco Chanel, 1972. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews.
0: My name is Bronwyn Winter, and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial.
1: And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Bronwyn Winter about women, insecurity and violence in a post-9-11 world. Now, would you like to uh, give us a bit of background information about yourself? and
0: Deputy Director of the European Studies Programme at the University of Sydney where I also teach and global studies programme. My research work, my publications cover quite a broader range of themes and broad range of countries, but they're mainly focused on intersections of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, religion, violence and the state and globalization as well in a transnational context. My politics I would describe them as radical feminist.
1: I know this is a really big question, but 9 11 affected different countries in different ways. But how did 9 11 affect women in different countries?
0: Well, you know, part of the problem, there's sort of this. I've used a rather clunky term, which, you know, for want of a better term, called post 9 11ism. And there's a sort of a. And I call it an ism because uh, it's a political discourse that has developed after 9-11 in the West, and you know, and even outside the West, in, in, in the so-called Muslim world as well. And it has three prongs to it. And I'm getting to answering your question, but I'm getting to it through this opening. The three prongs are sort of this Huntington-esque, us and them, you know, crash of civilizations, the West and the Muslim world, that's one prong. Another prong is the reimbrication of religion and politics. And that's not just in the Muslim world, it's also in the West because if you listen, if you look at George Bush's, if you look at the transcripts of George W. Bush's speeches after 9-11, God is all over the place. God is everywhere. And we have all sorts of religious research, reassertions of religion. We can see that in Australia as well at this point in time over the same-sex marriage debate, although that's not really something I want to talk about because I find the debate immensely irritating. But the, you can see this sort of, this, this reassertion of, this, sort of this, this quite conservative Christianity is happening all over the West as well. So there's this reimplication of religion and politics. And the third prong is the use is a securitization, a a sort of a hyping up of securitization discourse, and using women's rights as a sort of moral pretext for waging war. One of the big moral pretexts for waging war in Afghanistan was, let's go and save Afghan women. The thing is, the U.S. didn't care tuppence for women's rights in Afghanistan before 9-11, When it was the taliban and women were being oppressed quite you know horribly and the revolutionary association of women afghanistan among other associations were out there telling the world how oppressed they were but the u.s didn't care yeah after 9-11 suddenly we get oh let's go and save women let's go and save afghan women let's go and protect women's rights in the in afghanistan and won't that be great and we had all these speeches being made, look how free Afghan women are now, isn't it great? The are participating in the government, bloody, 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 blah, yeah. Yep. So we had this sort of discourse that somehow these sorts of quite aggressive wars were where well, they didn't catch bin Laden anyway, yeah, and they didn't stop al-Qaeda. <laughs> um, that happened quite a bit later. But these sorts of aggressive wars became about going and saving brown women from brown men to use Gayatri Spivak's, term although i'm not a big fan of spivak but it's a useful concept and so we have this sort of politics of rescue that is a moral veneer cloaking this hyper masculine securitization politics yeah so what's happening for women in these places where we're supposedly going and saving them is their lives are actually often becoming worse not better so if you look at somewhere like the philippines with the hyping up so even though Having U.S. military bases in the Philippines was illegal under Philippine law at that time. It was not illegal for the U.S. to participate in so-called training exercises or have visiting forces or have, you know, cooperative security locations, as they call them, or forward operating sites, it's sort of a new name, sort of the bases you have when you're not having bases. So these sites are controlled by the Philippines, but the U.S. presence is there all the time. So they're doing these military training exercises, and this gets ramped up after 9-11. So there are more and more and more U.S. military in the Philippines once again. And, of course, this is having the effects on women that we know. They go to the sex bars, there, you know. (laughs) So we have all this stuff going on again. And we have this eroding of Philippine sovereignty because of this push towards this militarization. And, of course, you know, there's a sweetener because the U.S. then gives aid to the Philippines and and the Philippines becomes again the dependent child of the u.s and as one senator said to me uh, whom i talked to about these things he said well at some stage we've got to grow up we've actually got to grow up and before we can do anything else we've got to be a sovereign nation and not be under the yoke of the u.s and of course women in the philippines if you look at the poverty rates in the philippines they're very high the philippines is one of the most literate countries in southeast asia people can read and write and they can usually read and write english many of them not everyone but you know philippines People usually speak two languages, possibly three fluently. However, the poverty rates are huge, really quite extreme. And sex tourism has gone up, exporting of women to be entertainers in Japanese bars or to be domestics in Hong Kong or Saudi Arabia or somewhere else, that's gone up, that hasn't stopped. So these sorts of narratives of let's go and save women... And the narrative I used that you commented on to me in a conversation before about the narrative I used to, to find a way into the book is about an Afghan woman called Gunaz, who was raped by her cousin's husband and she was promptly jailed for adultery under Afghan law. This is in 2009. This is seven years after the war. So, and women were self-immolating because of, you know, or being burnt or having acid thrown at them. And these sorts of things are commonplace in Afghanistan. Women are not safe. Women are not safe in Afghanistan. And even though a lot of people, women and some men, are trying to work to make women safer, the state remains deeply corrupt, deeply divided, and women's rights are really not a top priority. So saying that somehow we're making things better for women in the world is just poppycock.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I even saw a documentary on YouTube the other day, and it was... Oh, about the prostitutes in the Philippines and how, if they became pregnant, they'd just uh, give them abortions. But now they've uh, figured out that babies are worth money, and that's becoming quite big business now. In you know, selling babies.
0: Oh yeah, and you know, don't even get me into the surrogacy thing. i then mean, I'll really get, and you know, I'll just get really cranky. But, but part of the problem also is that. When you start having babies, you're no longer employable as an entertainer in the bars. So you then become a waiter in the bars, and the money's not as good. I'm talking about the sex bars in the Philippines. So there's a whole sort of micro-economy of working in these bars. And if you're 25 and you've had kids, you're already over the hill, so you go to working as a waiter instead of working as a dancer, and and so on. So, And some of these women are very, very young, and legally they're not supposed to work in the bars before they're 18, but... We are all pretty sure some of them are younger. So yeah, but it's not just the Philippines. If we actually look at Australia, and yes, we've had Rosie Batty was made Australian of the Year, and isn't that great? And yes, we've had all these government campaigns against violence against women. The thing is, violence against women is not going away in Australia. You know? And why does it take the murder of somebody's son to get a government to take this seriously? You know? So if we look. Throughout the West, the statistics on violence against women are appalling. And we have throughout the West, we have throughout Europe, we have throughout the United States, we have also in South America, we have in China, we have in Indonesia, we have in Australia, we have a movement, the political right, often a movement to the religious right, and we have this ramping up of the security discourse, and women are not getting safer. Now, whether this is a direct effect of 9-11 or not, I mean, I think it's, it's a long bow to draw to say this is only due to 9-11 and what happened after 9-11. It's not. It's clearly not. There are so many other things that were going wrong for women before 9-11 and are still going wrong for women. And all the, you know the bombastic sort of rhetoric about we're going to make lives better for women and we're going to address violence against women, and that isn't happening because the sorts of cultures that, create violence against women in the first place are not being addressed so if you want to stop violence against women you actually focus on the men you focus on the people who are committing the violence against women you focus on changing their behavior and of course none of that's happened yeah so while we're busy running off and you know talking about security and declaring wars and having this hyper masculinist discourse that's not going to make anyone any safer and it's certainly not going to make women any safer not in the u.s not in australia i mean look what's happening in the u.s with you know the, the most appalling gun violence, the violence against African-Americans, violence against women. It's there's really, and, and we have these countries that are proudly celebrating same-sex marriage, Argentina, France, all over the place, saying, oh, we, we've, we've, we've legalized same-sex marriage now and isn't that great, but women are getting raped and bashed, and women are also getting raped and bashed because they're lesbians. Same-sex marriage hasn't fixed these things. And while we have governments that are still adopting this sort of pro-security type of rhetoric and this neoliberal capitalism which renders people vulnerable in terms of their ability to earn a living and earn it safely and so on, we're really not addressing, we're not making the world a safer place for women, partly because of the sort of the post-9-11 legitimation of a certain type of discourse. Because I think what happened with 9-11 is it became a framing discourse and it became a legitimizing discourse, a um, a way of legitimizing certain types of militaristic rhetoric. So 9-11 is not the only cause, but it certainly gives, it creates, it has helped, how to express this, it has helped to create a context in which it's okay to be violent. In fact, one should be violent because there are nasty people out there to get us, and they're out to get us. So we need to respond to them violently. Again, I think of the refugee issue, but not only.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, you've also published a few articles on related topics between then and the latest book. Yes, well, I have.
0: I actually... In the middle of the last decade, no, towards the end of the last decade, 2007, and it actually was anthologized after that, I, I looked at John Howard, the Howard government's politics and the logic of the iron fist in the velvet glove, as one scholar called it, I can't remember who now, the iron fist in the velvet glove, this sort of security rhetoric, and we're going to protect you all, but inside the velvet glove we have the iron fist. And looking at how in... And there was a big scandal in the years following 9-11 in Australia, there was a, a money set aside for domestic violence, Partnerships for Domestic Violence, I think the program was called, and there was money that was earmarked for that. And it actually went into the notorious fridge magnet campaign and where we got sent handy little booklets and the little slogan, be alert but not alarmed, look out for signs of terror around you and denounce them to the local cops and the authorities as soon as you possibly see them. And we had this handy little magnet to put up. The money that paid for that campaign should have gone to Partnerships for Domestic Violence. That was uncovered by Labour Senator Trish Crossan, actually, from the Northern Territory, asking questions in the Senate Estimates Committee. It was then publicised by Anne Summers and other people. So we had... (laughs) <laughs> those sorts of things going on in Australia. At the same time, we had the intervention in the Northern Territory, which has been much debated. We had, we had defunding of legal aid, of Indigenous services, of women's services. And we've now seen in recent years the first women's refuge in Australia, ELSI, been, has, has been defunded and it's now been tendered out to Christians. So we saw the Christianisation of what had been Indigenous women's and so on services and i wrote an article about how the war on terror had actually impacted in the way governments prioritize certain things over others and how that was happening in australia and how services at that time were being tendered out to christians which you know is is part of what i was talking about before about the the re-christianization of politics so that was happening in australia I've written articles about, um, I I actually did a lot of research about the the Islamic headscarf debate in France. So I've written several articles about Muslims in Europe and headscarf debates and things like that. I've published a few articles on the Philippines. I've
1: done a few different things. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. I'm speaking to Associate Professor Bronwyn Winter about women, insecurity and violence post 9-11. Yeah, yeah, so what are your future study plans?
0: Oh, well, I'm I'm actually sort of being pulled in a few different directions. I, I wrote an article, I published an article a few years ago in a journal in Australia called Portal, Uh, critiquing state state approaches to same-sex marriage. And I was looking at that in Australia, in Argentina, and in France. And France and Argentina had legalized same-sex marriage, and Australia hadn't. But I was actually not looking about campaigns or social activists or people's motivations for wanting to get married or not. I wasn't looking at those sorts of debates. I was actually looking about how states approach it and how states co-opt same-sex marriage to their agendas. That article got shown by a colleague to another colleague and then got involved in being lead co-editor on a book on the institutionalisation of same-sex marriage internationally. That's coming out in December this year. With a colleague at the University of Sydney called Ducia Sobera who is in Arabic studies, we put together a special journal issue that has now become a book just been published with Routledge called Contending Legitimacy in World Politics because we wanted to do about this something about the concept of political legitimacy because I think that's also something that's been much debated in a post nine November context, you know, what 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 is uh a legitimate polity what are legitimate decisions by that polity how do you challenge legitimacy and how can a state assert its legitimacy and so on what else have i been doing i've now with all the same-sex marriage stuff which i've seemed to have got drawn into a little bit in spite of myself as i got drawn into the headscarves debates in spite of myself when you start writing about something and people like what you say they want you to say more of it so i've now got a contract a book contract with routledge to do a solo author book, a monograph on the political economy of same-sex marriage, doing a radical feminist critique of not just the politics of same-sex marriage, but also the political economy, so how marriage gets... Folded into a capitalist market economy, how it's sort of same-sex marriage and and same-sex families and so-called rainbow families fit into sort of welfare states and, you know, and and work arrangements, the marriage industry, the wedding industry, how corporations frame same-sex marriage and the sorts of benefits they get out of it, those sorts of things. And I'm also going to inevitably have to do a chapter on surrogacy as well, because it 's now becoming uh, some gay men are asserting a right to have children through surrogacy, so uh, the surrogacy debate's another big one that you know we as feminists need to tackle. I noticed that Renata Klein has just published a book about that, so yeah, so that 's keeping me busy for a while but i'm you know i'm trying i 'm also doing some work on the European Union, as I said, on asylum. I have done some work there on lesbian and gay asylum, and i 'd like to continue that work, but in order to be able to work seriously with asylum seekers one needs to actually have the funding to do serious field work and I haven't got that right now but hopefully I'll get some and I'll be able to do it
1: Yeah no it's very very interesting that you're uh, doing some research on same sex marriage and the political economy because uh, I remember it was a few years back that uh, you could actually go and register your union uh, well, I, I think Mr. Michael Kirby said it was like a dog license, I remember at the time. (laughs) And, uh, And people were rushing down there madly to register their relationship and... Then, it, it wasn't long after that, that Centrelink brought in that if you were in a relationship, as they called it, with somebody of the same sex, they were going to treat you the same as uh, heterosexual couples, and you, if one person wasn't working and the other one was, they were going to force you to be financially dependent on them. So we, we've all seen how that goes in straight couple relationships and how it causes domestic violence and how you know all the other things with being financially dependent on someone else just because you have sex with them occasionally it, well, it's quite bizarre actually when you really think about it isn't it
0: well i like to actually say to gay people who want to enter into these sorts of legal regimes and these sorts of family regimes be really really careful what you wish for because in some countries such as france If you lose your job, you are treated as an individual for the purpose of unemployment benefit. However, civil union, people in civil unions and people who are married and people who are de facto, because there's three types of arrangements in France, they're all subject to different tax regimes and different tax benefits. So there's still an inequality, yes? And however, if you do lose your job, you have the right to unemployment benefit as an individual and your partner's income is not taken into account. However, in, in Australia, as you've rightly noted, and I think also in the UK still, that doesn't operate and you're actually treated as the dependent of somebody else in your household if you, if you lose your job. And that can be somebody you're living with you're not married to. That, you know, that happens too. I remember when I was in the UK, you know, like decades ago, and I lost my job and I signed on for unemployment benefit and they asked me if I was living with a man. I didn't even have to be sleeping with him or married to him. just asked me if there was a man in my house, because I would be—I would have been of course, there wasn't. But I would have been assumed to have been dependent on him, and I would not have been eligible for the doll. I mean, Ooh, you know, so, so we're in this. So yeah, well, probably about, now you, know, you
1: can't can't live with anybody—a man or a woman, well, or well, that, you know, that, when that would I be think of
0: Sort of post 11 and women's rights. I mean. These sorts of logics are part of that scenario. We're really nowhere in terms of revolutionising society. We're going back and we're sort of waging campaigns for something that we call equality, and that equality is actually assimilating us back into this sort of heteronormative patriarchal structures and these capitalist structures as well, yeah, because... If governments want to legalize same-sex marriage, it's about shoring up an institution that actually is failing because straights are getting married less, yes? So why do governments suddenly really, why are they interesting in these, interested in legalizing same-sex marriage, and why do gay people want to get married? Because straight people are getting married less. And so suddenly we need to sort of work out the social cohesion differently, and we need to sort of keep promoting ma- va- marriage as a value. But I mean, I understand all the equality arguments. I don't want people who are listening to this to personally feel offended because I know people who have been deeply distressed by this debate and the ugliness it's taken in Australia. And I know people for whom getting married is really important and some of them are close friends of mine. And it's symbolically important. It's about equality. It's about being visible and being full citizens and so on. I completely get their arguments. However, some of us aren't married. And we also deserve to be full citizens. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. No, I I agree a hundred percent. And I mean, people should have a choice. But let's just hope that people make a educated decision about these things and not just follow blindly especially the institution of marriage which has hasn't done heterosexuals any good so i can't say that it's going to do anybody else any good but thanks very much for coming onto the program today you're very welcome and i've been thank s- you for inviting me been speaking to associate professor bronwyn winter you've been listening to radical philosophy on radio 3cr eight fifty five on your am dial Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company and stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?